Heavenly Father, we thank you for blessing us to be in your house this morning in order to worship you. We thank you for these songs that we've just sung. We thank you for blessing those who wrote them with the abilities to do so, for having them written down in books that we can look at and voices to sing them in order to praise you, in order to give some, some way for us to express our love for you because you have loved us so very much, much more than we realize and can even understand. Father, we thank you for blessing us now to have a man come before us that you have called out and given a special ability to preach your word to us. We thank you, Father, for that word. We thank you that through history... You called out certain people to write down the significant things that you would have us to know, that you've not left us just adrift in this world to try to figure it out on our own, so to speak, that you've given us clearly written words to read and to study and to pray over. Father, we just pray that now you bless us our ears to be open and our hearts to be ready to receive the word you have for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 30 through the end of the chapter. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's ask the Lord to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly this morning in all wisdom. And as we're letting this word dwell in us richly in all wisdom, ask Him to help us sanctify the Lord in our hearts. So to, to hold this up, hold Him up and His word up as more than just another thought or another opinion, but help us to say, Lord, this is you. You're speaking to us through your word. Ephesians 4 verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. This is God's word to us this morning. We looked at this word two weeks ago as we looked at the reality of of bitterness. What we might term an inability, but according to God's word, really is a refusal, a refusal to release a refusal to release, whether it's people or events. Ultimately, whether it's people or events, ultimately it's a refusal to release God. Jonah seems to be the poster child for this in the Bible. Where God asks him once, and he doesn't answer, it's not, the answer is not recorded. And then God asks him the second time, and I'll remind you, when God asks him the second time, it is after God has prepared a plant as a shade for Jonah. So God in mercy and compassion prepares a plant for a shade for Jonah. And then God sends a worm to eat that plant. And then God sends a hot storm to not only he is exposed to the sun now, but now there's an extra, there's a storm that is beating upon him, doubling the intensity of the suffering that Jonah is experiencing. Now that, that story... Brings up all kinds of questions, doesn't it? 
Is that truly a compassionate God that would do that? And the question we asked last time, are you willing to have a God who is God, who actually is sovereign, who doesn't promise to um, neatly uh, tie a ribbon around the box of your life and you look at it and go, what a beautiful present. God hasn't promised to do that. In fact, God rarely does that. We're going to see a little while. He, He doesn't do that because He loves us. But the question remains, are we willing to let God, now whether we are willing or not, God is God, but in your experience, are you willing to let God be God? So God asked Jonah this question, Jonah, do you, are, are you doing well, doest thou well to be angry? The second time Jonah answers the question, he says these words, I do well to be angry, and then adds to it, even unto death. He is so sure. That he is right. He is so sure that his perspective is, is clear. He's seeing clearly. He is so sure that it is impossible to see any other way, even if God himself is revealing the other way. As God says, Jonah, are you doing well to be angry? The implication is, Jonah, you need to look at yourself in the mirror. You are not doing well to be angry. And yet Jonah angrily retorts to God, I am doing well to be angry even unto death. In other words, I am digging in my hills. I am not moving from this position. I am digging in. I am set. And no one can convince me otherwise. You see, for Jonah, like for us in life, things were not resolved according to Jonah's expectation. How was it with your life? Have things been resolved according to your expectation? And is your expectation, is my expectation, the right expectation? Those are just words, but those are probing words, aren't they? Have things been resolved according to my expectation? And is my expectation, God's expectation, my expectation, the right expectation? So we saw that, that, that bitterness is this deadly poison according to Hebrews, according to James... It's an infector, it's a spreader, it's a mass spreader like the viruses that we have been introduced to and heard about so much these last few years. It doesn't just, it's not just contained in its own vessel. Yes, it does destroy its own vessel. It destroys the one who is holding it. Isn't that ironic? Bitterness seeks to relieve suffering but actually only intensifies suffering. And then bitterness spreads its suffering to all that it touches that every part of life, every relationship is affected by the bitterness. So we asked a series of questions at the end, sort of a probing questions designed to just make us think. These are questions from Ephesians 4. These are God's questions. And we asked it in the form of, would those close to you? That gets more to the point, doesn't it? Instead of, how do you see yourself? But would those close to you? Would those close to you say that you, and we went to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, that you tend to erupt in anger, or that a relationship with you tends towards disorder and friction, or that you easily and at the forefront of your thoughts retain and like to speak about the hurts, the pains, the wrong, the suffering of your life. Maybe another question would be this. Does Ephesians 4.32, and you know this passage, don't you Ephesians 4.32, be ye kind one to another, and then maybe the next word is the most important word, tender-hearted. Where's your heart? Where's your heart towards the situation? 
Where's your heart towards the person? Where's your heart towards God? Does Ephesians 4.32 tend to flatline when it hits your heart? Does it, is it usually met with a yes, but? Or are you quick to say, Lord, I am so amazed that God, for Christ's sake, hath shown mercy towards my soul that I'm content with whatever lot the Lord brings to my life. I do not want to be like Jonah. I do not want to say I am doing well and I'm digging in my hills. But Lord, in the spirit of Psalm 139, search me and know me and reveal to me, reveal to my conscience, my inner being, that I might see myself as I really am, that I might see myself as you really see me. You can see past the surface. You can see past even the sad story. You can see right down to my heart, and you're interested in what's going on in my heart. So, Lord, help me to know what's in my heart. Reveal that to me, that I might seek after the way everlasting. I might seek after honoring you. This is a wrestling match. In fact, the sermon is titled Wrestling with Bitterness. We sort of identified bitterness last time, and this morning I want to move towards God's help in thinking about wrestling with this truth. He says, get rid of it. Well, Lord, I want to. I don't know how to. Help me get rid of what I know you have said is a deadly poison. It's a place that I do not want to be. And so we're going to think about wrestling with bitterness today. And we're going to do that from 1 Peter but before we do that, I want to make just four quick things, four quick statements. Number one, this is important, I think. It doesn't have to be big things. I may have said that just for me because I've had to study this and meditate on this the last few weeks. And it's been amazing as I've sort of thought through those Ephesians 4.31 questions. Um, I had to call some people and apologize. I had to call somebody and say, listen, I've got to tell you something. I have been doing to you what I've been criticizing about you. Isn't that something? That's embarrassing, isn't it? I've been doing to you what I have criticized about you. So I'm modeling what I'm telling you not to do. Wow. Lord, rid me of that. Rid me of those bitter thoughts and those bitter actions. It doesn't have to be a big thing. Number two, this is very important, God expects you to be active in this wrestling match. There's no option here. It's not like, yes, I have this, but... It is what it is. I can't help it. No, that's not true. God says here, let all bitterness, wrath, anger be put away. Let this be put away. God, listen to this. I know this. God doesn't command what God doesn't provide. We need to hear that. God will not command to us what God will not also provide to us. He is the God of all grace. In fact, this Ephesian letter begins with the foundation of that truth. Before he gets to let this be put away, he begins with this. He begins with these words stated over and over and over again. You are chosen in Christ. You are raised in Christ. You are redeemed in Christ. You are empowered in Christ. Listen to these words. Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1.18. Lord, let the eyes of their understanding be enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of His calling, and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe, according to the working of His mighty power. 
which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. We just sang with this beautiful, righteous anger about that. Christ broke the bars of death. And he's saying to you, now Christ has been raised to be the head of the church. That's you. That's me. Collectively, and that's you and me in our daily lives. So the one who is our head and who is in us is the one who broke the bars of death and is raised from the dead to ascend to the throne of God. This is the power that is alive and working and available in every one of us to put it away. You must believe that. I must believe that. Lord, you will not command what you have not abundantly provided in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for that. We need to be as excited as we are about the prospect of heaven. We need to be just as excited about the reality of what lives within us right now. God has left us on this planet For as long as His perfect will has determined that we should be here in order that we might show forth the marvelous praises, the marvelous work of God in Christ in me. Please, please do not be content to say, yep, I've got a great hope in Christ and that has no real impact upon my my, my bearing today. Oh, what a shame to the work of Christ to be uninterested or think ourselves incapable because God has empowered us. He's quickened us from the dead. We are no longer like the Gentiles, living according to the course of this world with our consciences seared and our consciences uh, hardened and calloused against righteousness and our, and, and, and our, our, our senses turned and directed towards sin. God has changed that. And so he says, put that off and put on the new man, which is alive in Christ Jesus. Okay. Now the last little point we'll move on is this. This message this morning, and I want you to understand this, is a narrowed focus. We are not talking this morning necessarily about, you know, how, how to resolve conflict. Okay, that's another sermon. God provides answers in that as well. What we are talking about this morning, though, is when God in His sovereign will this is this act of faith we talked about last time. I think it, it really, it really um, provokes our perceptions of God. But when God in His sovereign will determines, purposes for us, that the bitter situations of our life just remain. Would God do that? Well, God doesn't promise Jonah that He's going to take away His bitter experience would God do that yes God will do that this is why this is called a wrestling match friends the ways of the Lord are mysterious to us his ways are good and ultimately that good is revealed it's revealed in perfect satisfaction and perfect glory when we awake in his likeness we shall be say it with me if you know it satisfied now you know it. Let's say it together. When we awaken as like this, we shall be satisfied. satisfied. No complaint. Fully understood. Fully satisfied. But we're not there yet. And so at times, 
God allows the bitter situation to remain. The question is, what will we do? Will we wrestle with God in the pattern of Jacob who grabs hold of God and he wrestles with God all night and he says these words, I will not let go. I will not let go until you bless me. I will not let go of God until you bless me. And then Jacob walked away from that experience. But do you remember how Jacob walked away? He walked away with a different gait than he walked into the experience with. Jacob limped for the rest of his life. So the experience was blessed in that he did not let go of God. And that's the question for us today. Are we going to stay grabbing hold of God... Or we're going to say, I'm going to try, God, what you said to do. But if it doesn't work, I'm heading somewhere else. I will not let go until you bless me. And he walks away with a limp. We better be careful with what our perception of blessing is, shouldn't we? The answer is we're going to grab hold of God. So this is not about resolving conflict. This is really about what do we do? How do we wrestle when, we are, when the situation does not promise to change at all? But let me just say this. This message is exactly the template for resolving conflict, though. This is a general proverb. This is what it says. Proverbs 16, I think verse 7, says, When a man's ways please the Lord, when a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. We understand that's a general truth. It doesn't always work that way. We will always have enemies who will hate our souls. But this is the right template, isn't it? Well, let's move to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a message to those enduring a bitter life, bitter life experiences. And I'm going to spend a few, you know, 45 minutes here with you this morning in this. I would really tell you that 45 minutes is not going to do it. I would recommend 1 Peter to your study, to your meditation, to just drinking it in. But let me just tell you this. Peter writes to a people who are enduring fiery trials. That's what he calls them, fiery trials. And they're trials of a personal nature. In other words, this is not just somebody looks around and says, Oh, the world's getting, 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 getting bad and you know, the economy's in a tough place, but they're still enjoying, you know, their refrigerator's still full and their car still has gas in it and they still have uh, electricity in their home. Um, it's not just a general trial that we just kind of see happening in the world. But this is people, individuals, who are actually experiencing their own personal life is a bitter experience, a fiery experience. Right now, they are under the fire. It's clear from this passage there are people that have deep, deep wounds that are deeply, at, in, deeply uneased. And it's clear from this book that there are people he's writing to who are enduring combative relationships with no end in sight. There is no end. There's no promised end in this whole book in life to the, to, that Peter offers to these people. That's a tough thing, isn't it? But I think it's noteworthy that Peter does not begin with their bitter story. That's not where he starts. Now, there's a place for that. There's absolutely a place for compassion and empathy and hearing. We, we should want to know and, and, re and, and understand that people really are un enduring some tough situations and wrong situations. 
and unjust situations. And there should be a place in all of our lives where we want to hear the story. But friends, the, 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 the wisdom of this world really stops and ends with the story. And you just sort of remain in the story all the time. And that's not God's way. Yes, Peter will say, yes, God has great compassion upon you. And he also will say, don't think it's a strange thing to be there. This is the way of life, he would say to them. But he doesn't begin with the story. He begins somewhere else. He begins by reminding the people, reminding the people in these fiery trials, he reminds them of their position. It's hard to see. It's difficult to see where we really are when we are in a bitter trial. But Peter begins right here. Here's how he begins. Let me read it to you. This is in verse 2. As he's addressing these people who are scattered, he says this, You are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are really being kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is where Peter starts. Peter starts by reminding them of who they are in Jesus Christ. He would say, did you remember that you were chosen by the foreknowledge of God? You were chosen not just to this suffering, but you were chosen unto the adoption of children. You were brought into the family of God because God from all eternity placed His care and keeping and His name, the stake of His name, upon you and upon your well-being. Before eternity began, God placed, God placed His glory, the stake of His glory. His glory will either fall or it will be elevated based upon what happens to you. Isn't that amazing? He chose you for this. So in other words, if you are not brought to glory, then God is not glorious. If you are not cared for, then God is not God. If you are not saved, then God is not God. Well, why? Because God decided to choose to love and care for you. You have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You are being sanctified. You have been sanctified and you are being sanctified through the Spirit of God. This is the farthest thing. You're sanctified. You're set apart. You are noticed. This is the farthest thing from being forgotten or from having received the short end of the stick. Isn't that true? You're sanctified. You have been chosen by God and set apart by the Spirit. You've been elevated and set apart by the Spirit for His care, for His polishing, for His keeping. This is the farthest thing from being alone, from being forgotten. You have been chosen by the, by the Father, through the Spirit, through the work of Christ, for obedience. This is a glorious thing. Before you were nobody, before you were a rebel, before you were an alien from the blessing of God, 
You do not belong in the covenant family of God, but God has chosen you to be one of those who is holy and who obeys Him by, not by your merit, not by your work, but by the sprinkling of the precious blood of His Son on your behalf and then by the resurrection of His Son according to His abundant mercy to give you a life of living hope. And the promise is that you will receive an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that will not be fade away. You have an inheritance that has been reserved for you by the sovereign ruler of the universe, kept for you by God. This is your end. And until you get there, you will be kept. You will be protected. You will be preserved. You will be kept through the power of God. So I'm not gonna, God didn't hire a security company for you. And you hope that you remember to set the alarm. Or that they'll get there in time. God didn't give you just a next door app. God, by Himself, through the power of God, has sworn Himself to protect you. Through faith, which He has given, which He will sustain, which He will keep. Isn't that glorious? You see, He's drawing their attention to the work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. And he will again and again and again through this, through this letter, he will draw their attention to the work of Jesus Christ. It is his work and his work alone that will overcome our bitter hearts. And so notice in the middle of all this, Peter will say these words. He will say so, not so, but, but this is what he's implying. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. What will it take to have peace, he says? He says, you have everything you need for multiplications. That's just, just picture that however you want. Maybe waves and waves and waves of peace surrounding your soul. What Peter is talking about really is what we call a knee-jerk response. Now, a knee-jerk response has a negative connotation in that we say, well, I just almost couldn't help it because it just, it just was provoked out of me. And Peter says, there should be that sort of a response, but not a sinful response. When the doctor hits your knee, it's supposed to respond, right? And so he says, when you're, when you're brought face to face, when you are experiencing the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, there is a knee-jerk response, and it's called peace. Peace. Well, that should be a challenge to our thought because the reality is we don't live in a lot of peace, do we? And so is it that God has, you know, people are spending millions for advertisements for today. Has God just said, well, I spent a lot in the budget, so I'm going to put a little extra there. That's not true for his ad. Or is God really God? Is God really saying you have everything you need and I am supplying multiplications of peace for your soul? Well, Peter will draw their attention now to four, four things or four implications the work of Christ should have upon our bitter hearts. I'm going to give you these four things and we'll look at them. The first one is love. What implications should the love of God in Christ have upon my bitter soul? Love. The second one is trust. This is certainly very closely associated with bitterness. Can I trust? Can I trust God? Well, what implication does the trust of Jesus to the Father 
have towards my bitter heart. The third one is obedience. Obedience. What did Jesus redeem me to? He redeemed me to obedience. And then the last one is hope. So love, trust, obedience, and hope. Let's start with love. Here's Peter's message to you this morning. Peter says you must become much more acquainted with the love of God than you currently are. We don't have time to go through a lot of this, but let me just give you these references. 1 Peter 1 verse 2. You have been elect. You've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. When you see that word foreknowledge, you should think two words. The first word is sovereignty. God does what He wants. And that's why God does what, what He does. God does what He wants. And the reason He does what He does is sovereignty. He's God. There's no, there's no, there's no external um, uh, prodding to God. He just does what He wants. And that's why He does what He does. But the second word, you see foreknowledge, speaking of His care for His people, you should always see the word love. He chose you because He loved you. Behold, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, Jeremiah, with cords of loving kindness have I drawn thee. So he says, you've been chosen because God loves you from all eternity. There's never been a moment when God has not looked upon me outside of love. God loves me. Verse 3, we have been... uh, We have been begotten again according to what? According to His abundant mercy. And just for a moment, think of all the ways that God could have dealt with you in any any situation. How could God have dealt with you? Well, all the ways that God could have dealt with you, judgment, vengeance, vanquishing, All the ways God could have dealt with you, that's not how God has dealt with you. The way that God has dealt with you has been out of abundant mercy. He has restrained Himself from all the other judgments and instead has poured out His love to you in Jesus Christ. So according to His abundant mercy... Verse 3, he says, He hath begotten us again. This is referring to the new birth. God gave you life. You ruined that life by your sinfulness. And instead of judging you, God has given you a second life, a second birth, a regeneration to, that is guaranteed to have His Spirit and His presence and His hope in your life. Isn't that amazing? He has quickened you. He has made you alive. He's given you, as it were, I don't like this term, but it really is a, a kind of a descriptor, a second chance, a new beginning. He has taken you out of the miry pit and He's put you on a rock, the rock that gives you a new song of salvation and a new song of hope in your heart. Verse 4, He has reserved heaven for you. Verse 5, He is right now keeping you by His power. Jesus Christ interceding for you. All the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, has all of His hosts directed towards you to keep your soul from perdition. 
to keep your soul from rejecting faith in Christ. He is keeping you by His power through faith. What a blessing faith is. It's a gift of love. That faith that we can even explain that somehow doesn't let go of God when all sight seems so bleak. We can't take credit for that. It is God's power of giving us faith. Faith, what a precious, precious, precious gift that it is. It's a gift of love. Verse 18 and 19. He has redeemed you. Listen to this. He's talking about this vain conversation we were in. Vain just means worthless. Vain means useless. Vain is what you throw in your wastebasket. Vain is what you flush down your toilet. That's vain. It's that which you don't want, that which you don't need. It's useless to you. And he says, that was your life. That was your life. You had this vain way of life. And you had inherited that from your, from your daddy, got it from his daddy, got it from his daddy. And so it's a whole generations and generations and generations of vain life. And so God sent the most precious thing that he has. That's what he says. He says, gold can't buy this, silver can't buy this, corruptible things can't buy this. But he sent the precious blood of Christ as the lamb without blemish and without spot. He gave his most precious for you, that which was most vain. That is love. Verse 7 and 8 of chapter 2 just says he's enabled you to see Jesus Christ. For many people, Jesus Christ is a stone of stumbling. He's a rock of offense. But for you, he is precious. God opened your eyes out of his love to let you see the preciousness of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 Listen to this. The implication is you were nothing. You were, verse 10 says, which in time past were not a people. <laughs> How insulting. But he says now, verse 9, you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are a peculiar people. You are a new ethnic group, an ethnic group that is marked by Christ and not by anything on the external. What love to make us something. Verse chapter 5, verse 10, just said this way, He is the God of all grace. What you know what that means? It means that God is always looking at you with a favorable disposition. In other words, He's inclined in all His ways to love you and to bless you and to help you if you are in Jesus Christ. And why is this? It's because of His great love. And so here is the knee jerk. Here's the response. Here's the response. Let me give you just three or four the first one is just this. Can you write this down, taking notes? I am so. Make that all caps. I am so loved. I am so loved. The better person says, I'm, I'm, I look around me and I'm, I'm barely loved, or maybe I'm not loved at all. You see, our perception of God must be realigned, doesn't it? Right now, in your bitter situation, you're not alone. Right now, you are covered in God's love. You know what that enables you to say? Well, this is sort of the second point. Write this down. I am consoled by this. If I am this loved by God, if He's keeping me, and he's preserving me. It, it enables us to say this. I would like to have the experience of the other loves of this life, but I don't need those. I don't have to have the love that my, in my bitter situation I'm not receiving because I have all. 
I have it all. God is not withholding any of his love for me. So I'm consoled. You, you see, here's what happens a lot of times in our bitter hearts. We say, yeah, yeah, I, I know I'm loved by God, but, and the focus is in on the situation that I'm experiencing, right? You see, what understanding the love of God in Christ for us, and what that really means, is not just this vague love, but it's a love that's working in me right now. Oh, understanding that allows us to do it. it it allows us to do this. I am so loved and replace the but with and. And then that and even becomes wow. Let me explain. Look at verse 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 of chapter 1. He's describing the great love of God for us in Christ. His keeping of us by His power through faith. And then he says this, wherein ye greatly rejoice. You see, there's no but there. Yes, I know I'm loved, but look what's happening in my life. In other words, instead he goes, and, and wow, look what's happening in my life. Here's what's actually happening in my life. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Here's what this passage says. This passage says that your bitterness is not an exception to God's love, but your, your bitter trial, but your bitter trial is an extension of God's love. Now that's a faith statement, right? It's not that we have God's love in election, and God's love in sanctification, and God's love in redemption, and God's love in, you know, when we're dying, and God's love in, the, in glory, but it's saying that all of life, is the experience of, for the Christian, all of life is the experience of God's great love for us. That's why you have words like, if need be. The if need be is not from our perspective. The if need be is from God's perspective. The God who is actively loving us right now is saying, if need be, you're going through a fiery trial. Don't you think you need to understand the love of God? This is not... This is not an exception to his love. This is an extension of his love. So I am so loved. I am consoled by that. God, if need be. And then the last one, this is so important. This is so important in bitterness. The last one is this. I am constrained. Remember, there's a a knee-jerk response. God is expecting a response. God says, let all bitterness be put away from you and be kind. There is a response. Listen to the response. As Peter is describing the love of God through all of this book, he will sprinkle in responses like this. Listen to chapter 1, verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto what? Here's the knee-jerk. Unto unto. Unfeigned, not hypocritical, unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Did you hear that? Unfeigned. An unfeigned love is one that is a pure, directed love towards the other. In other words, it's putting in 
um, it, 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 it is more interested in the, that's the tenderhearted, it's more interested in the, 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 the care and the needs of the other than it is in recounting its own story. It's unfeigned, it's real love. You go, yeah, 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 I, I love, but man, listen to what I've experienced. No, no, he's saying this is unfeigned love, this is real love. And then he says this, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. The word fervent, just write write in effort. It's real effort. It's effort that goes beyond and beyond and beyond. And it does not stop because God's love for me doesn't stop. Bitterness sucks away our effort and bitterness sucks away the purity, the the, the, uh, the, the unfeignedness of our love. You see, what Peter is doing in chapter 2 now, verse 1, is he's saying, you've got to change your focus. Listen to this, chapter 1, verse chapter 2, verse 1. Wherefore, because of God's love for us, wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. That's loving, right? So he's saying you have tasted of the love of God. And because you've tasted of the love of God, you want to run toward the love of God with his every bit of, 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 of fervor that you have. And so the love of God means that I've got to lay aside some things that are not like the love of God. My focus has changed. Before, my focus was in all that that made me malice, that made me have guile, that made me have evil speakings. I'm turning my focus from that, and I am planning my focus on the reality that Jesus Christ has loved me and died for me and is living within me, and He's enabled me to be as a living stone built upon the foundation of Christ. So I have a sure foundation. There's a rock under me. I will not fall. I will not perish. I will not fade. I will not be destroyed by this bitter situation. I am standing on firm ground. So I want to run to that ground and be more like that ground. He said, you can't do that with malice. You can't do it. You can't do it with hatred in your heart. You can't do it with guile. And you can't do it with evil speakings. So you had to desire the sincere milk of the word. The focus is hard, isn't it? You've seen those tricks where you put your finger up in a certain way against the sun. It looks like your finger's bigger than the sun or whatever it is, you know. The reality is the sun is, is massive, more massive than we could ever imagine. And our fingers are, are dainty and small. But the focus makes all the difference, doesn't it? He says, focus on that which is truly big, which is truly glorious. For time, we won't turn there, but he would would point us towards, in chapter 3, he would say it this way. Well, let me just, let's turn there. I'm going to run out of time, that's okay. In chapter 3, he has this long passage about love and how we're to love. And he ends that passage with that which is really the foundation of the passage, which is really the, the strength, the power of the passage. Here's what he says in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. He says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What does sanctify mean? It means to set apart. 
This is what God has done for us. He has set us apart to, for His glory. And He's saying, set apart the Lord God. So move your finger away from the sun and raise the sun up to His position. Now what are you sanctifying the Lord? What are you doing? You're sanctifying the Lord. You say, Lord, I believe that you love me just like you said. I believe that, 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 that when Peter wrote, if need be, that was not a mistake. And Lord, I have been elevating my hurt and my pain and my suffering and my struggle. And so, so my reactions to that have been justified in my mind because, because it's been so bad. But Lord, I'm going to change that. I'm going to, I'm going to raise you up to this position. Now, notice what that enables us to do. You see, all the, all, all the flatlining of Ephesians 4.32 is ultimately because the Lord is not elevated in our hearts. Right? He, he's just another thing there. He's, he's, he's another yeah, but thing in there. Friends, he's not yeah, but. He is all and in all. In all things, Colossians says, let him have the preeminence. So listen to what it says. Here's what it enables you to do. Verse 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind. Listen to this. Having compassion one of another. Is there any, is there any, any place there where there's an exit strategy? No. He says, all of you have compassion one of another, what changes might make if we gave as much effort to compassion as we gave to recounting our troubles? Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. We don't have time to go there, but we will in the next, I'm going to follow this up with the rest of this, this, this stuff later. I think it's important. But let me just say this, I'll say it again probably next week. This is just true. Bitter people make bitter situations far worse. Just do. Bitter people will justify their disobedience or forget it quickly because of their bitter experience. But listen to this. There is not one moment, not one time when not having compassion and when not being courteous is not absolutely essential. Not rendering evil for evil. You can't play that game. Or railing for railing, but contrary-wise, listen to this, blessing. Every word, every moment, God expects me to be blessing. Knowing, why, how, how do we know this? Knowing that you are thereunto called that you should inherit a blessing. What does he bring in their minds to? The great love of God towards me. God has called me to inherit his blessing. Isn't that amazing? So therefore, he's saying, I must bless. For he that will love life and see good days. What a key phrase that is. Everyone wants good days. The bitter one wants good days. And yet the bitter one always chooses the exact opposite path towards the good days. 
He that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. And his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew, run, flee from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. Oh, Lord, bless us. Lord, would you bring help? Would you bring change? But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of which is good? But, in, but, but and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Isn't that something? There's some hard situations that cause fear, cause pain. Be saying, listen, sanctify instead of, instead of, instead of, um, Sinking in your terror and trouble, he says instead, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What, what, what's he saying there? He's saying, remember, remember, you're being kept by the power of God through faith. You're, you're safe. You're safe in his keeping. Either God is speaking truth or God is not trustworthy. This is exactly what Peter says, especially the Holy Spirit. So we'll stop right there. Next time we'll look at trust and obedience and hope. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you, it cannot just be a one-moment acknowledgement. It must be the constant meditation of our hearts, of the great love of God, undeserved, for sinners, His chosen, His elect, through the blood of Jesus Christ. That must be the theme of our hearts. It must be. You cannot improve upon that. But also, it has practical outworkings that we must also, the knee-jerk, we must also acknowledge. You cannot have the love of God. But that's what 1 John says. Brothers, how can you say you have the love of God if you will not love others? Now, understand that this is not always about conflict. Sometimes it's about hard, hard, hard experiences in life. Sometimes life is just hard just know this, the love of God is not absent from that. We've been emphasizing God's love in the if need be. Let me tell you this, God's love is also in the mercy and in the pity and in the escape and the deliverance. God delivers. God is a delivering God. God has delivered you and God has delivered me on more occasions than we could ever recount. Listen, let me tell you this, just this week, y'all hear this story? I think you did. Just this week, what a sad story for five Marines to get killed in a helicopter wreck. What a sad story. God's sovereign. I don't understand that, but five Marines died this week in a helicopter crash, but there was one Marine that didn't die, and you know him, Gabe Jones. And Gabe was supposed to be on that helicopter. He has a wife, two or three children, Mark Jones, his father. And for whatever reason, Gabe and his friend decided to drive back from Nevada to California instead of flying the helicopter. And they escaped that. See, God delivers. God's sovereign. You can trust God. He does deliver. And He will deliver. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivereth them out of them all. Why? Because the great love of God for us in Christ is unquenchable. It will not change. So we can go to a hospital bed. Or we can go to a funeral home. And we can still say the Lord loves and the Lord is good and the Lord delivers. Will you run into the ocean of the love of God for sinners in Christ 
That's the only answer. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Now, Lord, let this word dwell in us richly in all wisdom. And may we sanctify the Lord in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name and amen.